this time to First uh, Kings chapter 19. And right now, all the children ages 3 through 3rd grade, you are dismissed to Children's Church. I hear there is candy if you are good, so be good. That's what I hear. First Kings chapter 19. We'll be reading uh, starting out in verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow, about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time, and touched him, and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose, and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave, and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel has forsaken thy covenant, torn, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, this beautiful day outside. Thank you that we're able to gather here together. Lord, please help me be a vessel for your message. Don't let the words be mine. Please, Lord, let them come from you. Let us look at this passage today and what can be learned from it. And please, Lord, help us to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We see here in First Kings, I'm going to back up a little bit here and tell you a little bit about, uh, kind of paint you a picture, the history of the time here we're looking at. At this point in time in Israel, it's little over 60 years since Israel has split off from Judah. Uh, ten tribes of the north followed Jeroboam when he led a rebellion against Rehoboam because Rehoboam did something that is suicide even in today's politics. He raised the tax burden. That is something that was even frowned upon in those days. I mean, look at our country itself. Look what happened uh, when I was just a young lad to uh, the first George Bush after he vowed not to raise taxes. Look what happened to him after he did. So Israel, in these past 60 years has been a country in constant turmoil. 22 years after its founding, 
the founding father, Jeroboam, and his entire family is murdered by Bisha. Is the guy's name. Just a nobody, came from humble beginnings, wasn't royalty or anything. That's who Israel gathered around behind, and they rose up and killed him and his entire family. They did not have peaceful political transactions or tra- <coughs> excuse me, transitions like we have today, where one party might say a few bad words about the other as they're taking office. No, uh, being in politics was a matter of life and death back then, or in that time, and still is today in some parts of this world. And then 24 years after that slaughter, we have a military coup where a, he, would be, he was captain of half the chariots in the Israeli army, be considered probably something equivalent to what we would call a colonel or a brigadier general, for those of you familiar with military terms and rank structure. He wasn't numero uno or even one of the top. He was kind of an assistant to one of the tops. He led a military coup that destroyed all of Bisha's family, and they were all murdered. And he reigned a grand total of seven days. He made it a week before the man who would be considered, I guess, uh, chief of staff, Omri, totally overthrew, uh, conquered him, and Zimi committed suicide and burned down the king's house, the equivalent of our White House, on top of himself. So, and after that, the children of Israel can't decide who's the king. So half of Israel goes with one man, Half of Israel goes to another, and there's about, the math is a little little um, sketchy, kind of in the Bible there, where exactly it began and ended where the fighting exactly stopped. At the end of most civil wars, there's often a period where you've got to kind of mop up the resistance. So it's, it's either five or six years, and Omri overcame, and he was... King Ahab's dad, and we're getting close to where we're at here now in the now in the Bible. And if you can imagine who Omri is, chairman of the chiefs of staff, relatively captain of the host is what he's called in the Bible. Military guy, probably kind of tough, rugged. You see his son, King Ahab, kind of a pushover, kind of gets walked on, marries. For uh, political purposes, uh, a lady that we would often call in the Bible the worst of the worst. She is who is always compared to when uh, we say a uh, lady is not acting well and is an ultimate insult. I mean, you probably shouldn't even say it to call a woman Jezebel. I wouldn't. Um, but that is one of the ultimate of insults. And that's who he marries. Now, Ahab ascends the throne... And you look at all these kings, and you look through the book of 1 Kings, Jeroboam is bad, throws off God, decides he doesn't want anybody going to the temple, so he throws off religion for political reasons. Because he thinks that uh, the people that are supposed to be following him are supposed to be his subjects. Well, they're going to go worship God down in Jerusalem, my rival. Oh, and then they're going to turn on me. So for political reasons, he gets rid of uh, he cuts off all ties with uh, Judah, makes his own religion. But every king after him slides further and further back. 
until we get to King Ahab. He ascends the throne, marries Jezebel, one of the worst women in history, and he raises an altar to Baal. Now, to kind of get totally, and this is very important here, to understand the mindset of what's going on around Elijah that causes him to do what he did in this chapter, which was to flee. I mean, at this time, think about, you can't really look at it and how it, and try to compare it to what we know and what the norm is for our society. If you see here from all this turmoil, working for the government is not a cushy job at this time. It's a job that's probably going to lead to a violent death. It's not like today where you get a, where you tend to get a decent pension for life. It's nothing like that at all. Each king is more wicked than the last, bringing in horrible sins that can't even be mentioned uh, in front of the age groups that we have here. And Israel has finished, within the last decade, has just finished a horrible civil war where half the country was pitted against each other. And then, after all that, Ahab comes in, worst of the worst, and there's a three-year drought. And now, this isn't a drought like the one we experienced here where swamps started drying up, didn't receive a lot of rain, got a little bit. No, there's absolutely no rain, and to top it off, there's no dew. Which, and that is a completely foreign thought to us. Being over in, having been over to the Middle East, um, some folks of here have been over there, they can tell you just how absolutely arid it is. You don't have black soil there. At least not where I went. They had black soil where you were at, Nathan? Mostly rocks. Mostly rocks. Yep, I, I, can, I can relate to that. Mostly rocks and sand and gravel. So that kind of ground, for those who did do any farming background, you go without rain for a little bit, and you're in a lot of trouble. Three years without even getting dew, now you don't have food. Your source of transportation, which runs on grass, is gone. The horse is there. <coughs> and the mules. So it's, it's a very rough time. And during this time period as well, Jezebel kills all the prophets of the Lord. Orders all of them slaughtered. Something that, as you see, is a little bit of a side note there. A tiny glimmer of hope. We see the man who would, in today's government, be considered Ahab's uh, chief of staff. He saves about, he's only able to save about 100 prophets and feed about 100 of them. Hides them away in caves, 50 apiece. So that's what's happening to the prophets of the Lord. You can't even be in clergy. So being in the government is a death sentence. Being in the clergy is a death sentence. Well, I shouldn't say clergy. Being a servant of God is a death sentence, because as we'll see later, the religious class definitely wasn't a death sentence. And being a farmer is a death sentence. So you pretty much these people, there's, there's no hope. They're very hopeless people. And they, and to top it all off, Elijah comes back, and this event takes place right after Mount Carmel, what happens there. And on Mount Carmel, God, uh, or Elijah comes out of hiding. He goes up to the king, who wants him dead, and says, Okay, king, 
Mr. Sovereign, wants me dead. You will gather all of Israel, all of these people who are very desperate, who blame you for all this turmoil. You, Mr. King, are going to tell them all to come up to Mount Carmel here, in this centralized location. And what you're also going to do is you're going to take, you're going to tell all the prophets of Baal, who eat at your wife's table, these prophets of Baal were pretty much the queen's lapdogs. I'll use that term very derogatory towards them. They were in this position just for the benefits, which meant they got food. You're going to bring them all up to Mount Carmel. And when they're up there, we're going to have a little showdown. And this was not a showdown. I've heard, I mean, even when I was in uh, the class and whatnot, it portrayed as kind of Elijah mocking these men trying to call down God. Oh, come on, call down your God. He's Maybe he's asleep or something. You can't call down fire. got to wake him up. That wasn't the kind of taunting that was going on. The kind of taunting that was going on, this is a life or death struggle here. And the type of taunting that's going on is something that you would call on someone who is trying to kill you. Something that I'm sure a few of us in here can relate to. When you're under fire from someone, you get very angry. And Elijah was in that frame of mind. And your blood is pumping. Your stress is up. You are, and you're sitting there, you're sitting there, if it's with rifles or with a weapon, you're sitting there and you're like, you're not yelling, come on, man, you're, come on, you idiot, get out here. Stand up. Quit hiding. That's what's going on on Mount Carmel. And after all that takes place, these prophets, so desperate to get their God's attention, cut themselves. Nothing happens. Elijah calls down fire from heaven. And Israel, all of Israel, who is gathered on Mount Carmel, sees who the true God is. Huge victory for Elijah. The children of Israel rise up. They take these prophets of Baal in an act of total rebellion against the state and against the queen. They take this protected class down to a brook and slaughter them all. Now these are people who have the government's absolute protection. And the people of Israel, because of this demonstration of God's power and strength, have just totally said, we don't care. You're gone. And after that, there's finally rain in the land. And finally, after a three-year drought, it is pouring down rain. It is a great time. It is a great victory. After all that, that's where we're going to pick up our lesson here. And all of that being introduction, I'll give you the title now. Uh, The title is um, Elijah Syndrome. Because we look at it, and that's who were the queen. And I want you to think about the ridiculousness of this. The queen has said to Elijah, look there in the uh, first part of this verse. In verse 2, Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods... Okay, 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 okay. This is real funny. Your gods. All their prophets are just got slaughtered. So... Let the gods... Okay, Elijah, why are you afraid of their gods? They've already been wiped out. That's the foolishness of this, this queen. 
say, so let the gods do to me. Okay, that's a harmless threat. What are they going to do to you? (laughs) They can't do anything. They're false gods. All of Israel just saw that. But even though all of that happened, Elijah does something that um, kind of find a little funny. You just defeated all these prophets of Baal. You just defeated the people that she was protecting. And God gave you a great victory. Got up and ran into the desert, and he becomes suicidal. Literally, where he says there, um, let's see, where is it at? Uh, verse 4. And he requested himself that he might die. So after all this great victory, a threat, an empty threat, causes him to become suicidal and run into the middle of the desert. After he had stood up to the king, told him there was going to be three years drought, and then gone away and escaped the consequences hiding by a brook and then in a widow's house, the consequences of everything that the queen threw at the prophets of the Lord. Comes out for one day, has a great victory, gets scared and runs back again. And the definition of Elijah syndrome is when, and this will apply to us Christians here, the mindset we get, woe is me. I am the only one left serving God. No one else is serving God. No one else even fears God. All is lost. All is hopeless. Just let me die. This is too much. That's what Elijah's syndrome is. Elijah was a great man of God, and this is a one moment of weakness in his life that we're going to look at. This does, I'm not criticizing the prophet by any stretch of the imagination. I just want us to look at this one point in his life, and I want us to realize what the mindset is, which is the first point, what, it, what led to this mindset, and then a little bit later, well, I won't give it away. All right, what led to this mindset is the first point. Underneath that, point A, isolation. Isolation led to this point. You see from this story here that after Elijah had made this prophecy against Ahab, how God was going to punish him for all the wickedness he had done, he goes, he uh, hides in the desert, And he's also in a widow's house, where this widow is taking care of him by the grace of God. God is completely providing for him. And he's not surrounded by anybody else serving God. He's not with any of the other prophets. And all he's hearing is bad news. He's only hearing about what Jezebel's doing. He hasn't heard about what the king's chief of staff has done for at least 100 of them. So he thinks everybody in the government is corrupt. He thinks everything is gone. All is lost. And the second sub-point underneath that, excuse me, here I grab a drink of water, is exhaustion. We see Elijah was exhausted here, as any of us would be, and be extremely frightened, because he had just risked his life by Number one, coming out of hiding where God had miraculously been caring for him. I mean, God said he would care for him there until the drought ended. So he could have stayed there for all eternity, as far as we know. He risked his life by confronting the king, going into the king's land, and confronting him and ordering the king around. And then he really signed his own death warrant by messing with the queen's religious class, or her lapdogs, as I derogatorily refer to them as. He is 
That's what led to, and the biggest thing that led to him, go back to the point of isolation. And applying that to how we as Christians look around us. If you only stay by yourself, if you focus in on yourself, you'll get this mindset too. If you don't look at and you don't pay attention to what God is doing in the world around you. The Bible says that heavens declare the glory of God. So that's all we really need to look at. And the Bible also tells us, and there's a reason for it, to forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And I believe one of the main reasons of that is also to prevent us from getting this syndrome where we think all is lost and woe is me. Where we don't pay attention to what God is doing maybe even outside our own church. But now that we've identified the problem, we're going to look at how did God pull Elijah back from this brink of suicide. How did God kind of slap him out of it? How do you wake him up? Look in verse 11 through verse 13. And he, talking about God here, said, Go forth, stand before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so that when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? God showed him that God working is not just in the big, huge, important things that we see. It's not just in the great, like whether when we see someone coming to church, or we hear a miraculous story of someone being, or as, as I'm sure the folks in the jail ministry have heard, someone miraculously coming to Christ after being in bondage to, whether it be various sins, alcoholism, drugs, whatnot, so forth. God's not just in those big things. It's not all about the big events. God was in the still, small voice. And God is, and we need, what we need to do, we need to look to see God to, and pay attention and spend time in God's Word to study how His Holy Spirit is working in our lives and pay attention to it, how it is working in our lives from day to day. And secondly, and how did God snap Elijah out of this? We see it in verse 15 and 17. And the Lord said unto him, Go. Return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nisha, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Sephat of Abelamoth, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. So God right there showed him, okay, you just proved me right. You just stood on Mount Carmel, defeated this false religion that was dooming people to an eternity in hell. That was a big, huge event. But 
that's not all it's left for you to do. There's still work to be done. You still have, I still have work for you. And all of us even have, especially after big events in our lives, when Sutler, uh, an example, I can think of from my own life, someone you've been praying for and praying for and praying for for a long time, for years, finally comes to the Lord. And that is a big event. Sometimes a very discouraging event will follow after that. And it's very easy to fall into this Elijah syndrome, as I'll call it. But you need to realize, even after these big events, there's still work for you to do. God is still left you here. And it's definitely not time to go. Thirdly, God showed him that there were far more people to be won than Elijah imagined. You look underneath here, and after God has shown Elijah all this, shown him he still has work to do, you see in verse 18 he says, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Looking at that verse 18 there, God kind of opened Elijah's eyes. Now, these folks here I want you to look at, there it doesn't say that these people were serving God. These people were not prophets of God. It says they were merely people who hadn't bought in to the foolishness of what was being rammed down Israel's throat. The foolishness of Baal and the false idol worship. There were 7,000 people who stood back and was like, this ain't right. Maybe they were, I can only speculate, maybe they're saying things like, wait a minute, why, am I, why are these people all worshiping Baal? He can't bring water. He's a stone. Why are we worshiping this? Why are, why are we doing this? When you get, and when you as a Christian get hopeless or down on serving the Lord or think no one else is doing it, there are many people, and I will tell you this for a fact, from having gone out there, there are a lot of people who haven't bought into the wickedness that is being pushed by the mainstream culture in our society. There are a lot of people who haven't bought into the objectifying, i got to be very careful here I put this, um, the objectifying of women in a derogatory way, where the world tells them, you're pretty much only good for one thing or tells them either directly or indirectly that your power comes through you. Uh, term giving yourself away. Or have not bought into the fact that, men, you are just something that is controlled by the hormones within your body. And you, you just can't help it. That is one of the things that is pushed by our culture. Another thing that is pushed by our culture, a lot of people haven't bought into, is that we came from nothing. That is impossible. Nothing cannot come from nothing. Um, well, that's something I should have researched. I should have looked up the the law that, the scientific law that uh, talks about that. When I preach this sermon again in about five ten weeks, I'll have that in here. Just kidding. I won't preach this sermon again in five weeks. All right. I just. I'll, I'll be a little more diligent than that. Well, I did. Okay, anyways, moving on. Um, 
There are people in this world, lots of them, who have not bought into everything that this world is. They don't necessarily serve God. They don't necessarily believe in Christ. And you can see that evidenced in the amount of people who claim to be agnostic. Agnostic being uh, most, you know, fancy word for, well, there's something out there, but uh, I don't know what it is. That's what, that's boiled down what an agnostic is. And that is one of the largest growing groups of people in this nation. So there are many people out there, as far as us Christians, who they haven't bought into that. And we need to be focusing on them. There are many people also in this world, maybe that we don't hear about, we don't see, that are also serving Christ and are also experiencing victories. And that's why it's very important for us. You take a chance, and sometimes I challenge each and every one in here to do today, if you're a Christian a member of this church, if you don't already do it, go back there, and all those missionary letters across the wall back there, take some time and read those. Uh, missionaries, they put time into summarizing their work, holding themselves accountable to us as a church that supports them. If you ever get the feeling that you're the only one doing anything, just go back there and read how God is working in their realm of the world. Or make a contact with some of your Christian friends who maybe you knew from uh, either be at college or high school. A little practical reason there. There are many people in this world who haven't bought into what Satan is peddling. Just as there are many people in Elijah's world that had not bought into what Baal was peddling. Now, as far as the invitation goes, I'll ask the instrumentalist to come up, please. Don't need to start playing yet. Um, I just want to ask everyone here. The question, are you one of those people that have not bought into the worldview that's put forth by society? If you're not, maybe you're a visitor here. I'm not sure exactly. This is a general question. I want you to think about these things. I want to tell you, um, if you're not, just ask. Say, I mean, I, maybe you're a smart, you're a smart analytical person who kind of steps back and looks at everything and says, okay, this can't be right. What's been taught to me as far as how I came to be here, how we as a race of uh, people, not as a race of um, uh, the different racial groups, but as a race of human beings came to be here. And also, does something, maybe something inside you tells you you were created for a purpose. And it's a purpose greater than just punching a time clock or running the rat race, trying to make as much money as you possibly can, or just kind of meandering through life. And there, I'll tell you, there is a purpose for you being here. You were created. You were created by an almighty God, and He did put you here for a reason. And our forefathers... Far, far back, thousands of years, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they sinned against this holy and righteous God, and they, set, they doomed all of mankind to a spiritual death. 
But God, your Creator, loved each and every one of you so much that He sent His Son to earth. And He sent His Son to earth to die on a cross. Now that might seem a little a little different, like why in the world would He have to die on a cross? Well, it's because there's a penalty for sin. And the penalty for sin is death. I won't ask you to turn there, but if you look in Romans... Uh, 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then in Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin, the payment you get for sinning, for doing wrong, for doing what everybody else has done, is you get to die. Woohoo! Yay! Yay! No. That's not. But the gift of God is eternal life. John 3.16, the most common verse known in America, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you continue reading, reading down into the 17th verse, it said, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. The world was already under condemnation. Jesus Christ didn't come to the world to condemn the world. The law already did that. It's already been done. We've already condemned ourselves. But that the world through him might be saved from what they true might be saved, saved from what they truly deserved. And it says in Romans 5 8, but God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And a scripture I will ask everybody to turn to. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. I'm going to read a couple verses out of that. It says, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if thou, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Saved from the consequences of whatever, or not, not whatever, saved from the consequences of sin that we all deserve. And then it tells you how. It says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouths... Confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For those of you who haven't bought in the instruments, uh, if you'll all turn in your hymnals here to uh, hymn 319, that'll be the invitation hymn. I'm going to ask you,